Chapter 18 of Wise and Otherwise. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wise and Otherwise by Pansy. Chapter 18. For by wise counsel thou shalt make thy war. They held a family mass meeting in the back parlor that evening. At least they called themselves the family. Dr. Douglas and his wife were there, so also were Mr. and Mrs. Alec Tyndall. Abby sat beside Dell on the low couch near the south window, while the host alternately paced the floor and, pausing, leaned his elbow on the mantel and his head on his hand. As in many a gathering heretofore, Mrs. Dr. Douglas had for some time been chief speaker. At this particular moment she closed her harangue with the telling sentence, I certainly think it the queerest, not to say the most absurd, scheme that I ever heard of. Not even accepting your own proceedings, when you became bookkeeper in a box factory? her husband questioned gravely. No, indeed, I'll not accept that. The position of bookkeeper in a box factory is, after all, very different from the one that Dell proposes. That's just the point, Dell said with animation. It's because people draw such wonderfully fine shades of distinction that I feel possessed to overturn some of them, or at least ignore them for myself. "'But I don't feel fully convinced as to the occasion for such a proceeding,' Dr. Douglas said, in his grave measured tones. "'You wish, of course, to assist your uncle. I understand and appreciate that point. But are there not better ways of doing it? For you, I mean, not for everyone. For instance, haven't you a special talent to use?' "'Music, you mean, of course,' Dell said eagerly. "'Yes, I think I have talent in that direction. Whether it is to use just now is another question.' I'll take Boston as an illustration. I could secure a music class of twenty-four there in less than as many hours, first because of my uncle's former position, and secondly because the people in our circle know that I can both play and sing. I am a more skillful player and a much better singer than Miss Wheeler, for instance. She is one of a dozen or more poor music teachers, with whom I am acquainted, who are struggling to earn a living in that way. Now, I am not a whit better teacher than any of them. In fact, it isn't in the least likely that I am as good as they, because they have been trained to that work, and I haven't. But I should draw my twenty-four scholars from some or all of their classes, thereby making their miserable incomes smaller. And there are reasons, this with the deepening of the scarlet on her cheek, why I should not continue in the position long when once assumed. Therefore, I should only aid my uncle by supporting myself, a thing which I believe I can do in a way which will not detract from any other person's means of support. Very well put, Dr. Douglas said, with a grave smile. I withdraw my suggestion in regard to the use of the talent. There are other places in the world besides Boston, Mr. Alec Tyndall remarked. And other occupations besides teaching music, Abby added. She had nothing to say on that point having occasion to know that the objection which applied to Boston would apply with equal force to Newton, but still she had her word of demur. Your education fits you for a teacher of any branch that is open to ladies. Oh, yes, Dell said, with increased animation. I am undoubtedly fitted to teach any branch that ever grew. Mrs. Tyndall, how many applicants did you say your husband had listened to in one week in regard to that vacant place in Elm Street? Seventeen, Mrs. Tyndall answered, laughing, and Dell turned a serio-comic face toward Abby and said in tragic tones, Would you have me be the eighteenth? 
Oh, I tell you the world is full of unprotected females who are ready to rush into any schoolroom that will open. I'm not one of them. I really don't feel qualified to teach, because it would be martyrdom to me. I would much rather be keeper in a state prison. It's a woeful idea that because a woman has nothing else with which to support herself, and knows how to read and write, she can therefore teach. Amen, Mr. Sales said emphatically. Essie shall never go to school to a teacher who has not been called to the work from the love of it. She will never go, then, laughed Mrs. Douglas. I don't believe there is such a teacher extant. Oh, yes, there is, Julia, her husband gravely interposed. I know some faithful teachers who are as much called to the work as a clergyman is to the pulpit. So do I, Dell said emphatically. The only trouble is, I'm not one of them. The most I could hope to do would be to pray not to hate it. Why don't you follow my illustrious example and retire to the seclusion of a box factory or something of that sort? Mrs. Tyndall questioned gaily. Mrs. Douglas has hinted at the reason, Dell explained. Even that, Mrs. Tyndall, is for some mysterious cause considered more proper, more in keeping with appearances, than to take charge of somebody's commodious, well-arranged kitchen and cook nice, wholesome dinners for respectable people. I don't pretend to explain the wherefore in the case, but you all know it is so. At this point, while the company at large were engaged in an eager discussion in regard to certain of the above statements, Dell and her hostess indulged in a little aside conversation. I wouldn't feel as I do, only it is so unnecessary a proceeding, Mrs. Sale said in reproachful tones. Dell, I really thought you had more confidence in me. Whereupon Dell laughed. My dear child, she said, I really thought you had more sense. Then seriously, dear Abby, let me tell you about my confidence in you. If I were sick or blind or lame or in any way disabled from doing for myself, I would, in case my Uncle Edward could not care for me, turn to you and your husband and receive gladly and gratefully your help in any way that I needed it, and thank God joyfully that I had such friends. But I am neither lame nor blind. On the contrary, I have splendid health and strength. Is there any reason on earth why I should not use them for my own support? Abby's sweet, sound common sense told her reluctant heart that there was not. So, not choosing to make any audible answer, she let her voice drop still lower and asked, What would Mr. Nelson say to such a strange idea? The rich blood mounted in waves to Dell's forehead, but her answer, if answer it could be called, was prompt and bright. You don't know Mr. Nelson. One of these days you will, I hope. Then you will need no reply to that question. Ah, but Dell, there are two sides to every question. Why should we jostle against people's prejudices? Why should you, for instance, looking forward to being a clergyman's wife, place yourself in a position that might in certain places and with certain people injure your influence? Theoretically, said Dell gravely, I do not believe in jostling against people's prejudices unless some good is to be accomplished by doing so. Practically, I confess that I enjoy doing it when I have a remarkably good chance. But theory will bear me out in this case. You have touched upon one of the main reasons why I want to do this unusual thing. I want to reach the level of this class of persons. I want your cook, when I have a talk with her about her duties and her trials, to understand that I know precisely what I am talking about. Depend upon it, she thinks, when you talk with her, 
that it is the same as if an angel direct from one of the stars tried to appreciate the trials of smoky chimneys and burned fingers. I want to be able to say, I know all about it, Jane, I've done it, not for myself, but in that harder place, for other people. As for the prejudices, I think they need running against unmercifully. The clamor of voices at the other end of the room grew louder. Above them all finally arose Mr. Sale's tones, appealing to Dell. Miss Dell, listen to me. You are called to the front. Stand forward and acquit yourself. This metaphysical doctor of ours is given to probing things. He wants to hear you in your own words explain, if you can, why this is a serious, common-sense resolution, and not a quixotic idea to be repented of to-morrow. During this sentence the doctor tried to enter a disclaimer, but finding himself outvoiced, folded his arms in smiling silence. Well, Dell said with animation, I shall be delighted to have the floor. I am really burning to make a speech. I know half this audience are looking upon me as a martyr, and the other half think me a goose. I don't believe I'm either. I want to tell you just how it is. During the next six months or so, I propose to earn my living. I think I have fairly disposed of the musical question. She paused with an inquiring look bent on Dr. Douglas, who, still smiling, bowed in silence. And the teaching? Dell said, still inquiringly. Yes, and the teaching, Mrs. Tyndall answered promptly, for Jerome said Essie shouldn't be sent to you, and our Sadie shan't, and there are no other children worth speaking of. Then, said Dell gaily, what remains? The needle. I hate the very sight of one. And besides, the world is full of genteel people who are starving over that weapon, fuller, if possible, than it is of musical professors and schoolmams. The doctor spoke about talents a while ago. Now I honestly think I have another besides music. I know how to cook. I don't dislike to. I don't think there is nearly as much drudgery about it as there is in teaching. That is, you understand, there wouldn't be to me with my tastes. In thinking about my special talent for this sort of work, I was led to inquire narrowly into the feeling that apparently closed that door upon me. I found it had its rise in the popular idea that such sorts of work are degrading. Why, in the name of common sense, people should have such ideas, I don't pretend to say. But the kitchen with its belongings is the only department of labor open to us that does not seem to be overcrowded to an alarming degree, and in that there is an alarming dearth. I don't believe I ever spent two hours in company with two married ladies in my life that they didn't during that time deplore the lack of good help. Whereupon Mrs. Douglas and Mrs. Tyndall exchanged shrugs and glances, and their respective husbands laughed. Now, I'm not at all sure that I should like to be a cook all my life, any more than I should like to be a music teacher, but I do feel certain that there is nothing degrading in the position, and am very anxious to prove it. I don't expect to reform the world, but I want to help enlighten my special corner of it. I want to know by personal experience what are the special trials of that class of humanity known as help. I want to understand how many of the peculiar trials might be overcome by patient, persevering effort on the part of those who are called to endure. Then, in my future life, whenever I come in contact with a girl of the right stamp, who is trying to earn a genteel living by penning herself up in an ill-ventilated schoolroom, or starving over a needle, I shall be able to advise her to try what I did. Or not to try it, Mr. Alec Tyndall said pointedly, in case your experiment fails. Or not to try it, yes, sir. I accept your amendment. 
I confess that at present it is but a pet theory of mine, and I am very anxious to subject it to the crucible of personal experience. Have you a place in view? Mr. Sales asked, with imperturbable face. I might write you a character or two. The company, with the exception of Abby, received this question with great merriment. She looked grave and perplexed. Abby is disturbed, said Mrs. Tyndall, still laughing. Lest Dell might go to Mrs. Roberts, for instance, to try her experiment, in which case it might be necessary to invite both mistress and maid to her tea parties. No, said Dell, with an emphatic shake of the head. I will be too wise for that. I shall not go to Mrs. Roberts or Mrs. Anybody else who has heard of me before. I am not going to play, but to work in genuine earnest. But, Dell, you are going to experiment in Newton, are you not? Not a bit of it. What sort of earnest would there be about that? It would be looked upon as a new scheme for amusement or excitement, and I should be the subject of a nine days' talk and accomplish nothing. I'm going out on the strength of the abilities I possess, not on the strength of the position that I have occupied. There had been during the last few moments a visible lightening of Dr. Douglas's face. He spoke now in clear, strong tones. The question is, can we be of any practical assistance? I knew the doctor would get something practical in presently, said Mr. Sales. He has been unpractical a long time for him. I do need your assistance, Dell said, a shade of anxiety creeping for the first time into her voice. The assistance of all of you. I very much want to know whether you all disapprove of the scheme as unwise and objectionable. But before you answer me, I ought to tell you that I have another hope in regard to it, the hope of doing another kind of work, a quiet little special work for Christ in a field that is sadly unreachable now. Her voice was so sweetly earnest and serious that it was impossible to answer her other than in serious words. Dr. Douglas was first. I want to make haste to say that now that I begin to understand the scheme in all its bearings, I appreciate, respect, and honor the one who proposed it. The shade on Dell's face visibly lightened. To be appreciated, respected, and honored by Dr. Douglas was no small thing. The company were disbanded suddenly after that. A messenger came in haste for Dr. Douglas, and the Tyndalls grew shocked at the lateness of the hour and hurried homeward. She is a grand girl, Mr. Tyndall said, as they walked down the quiet street. But after all, Frank, I don't think her plan requires any more moral courage than it took for you to become a shop girl. It requires more Christianity, Mrs. Tyndall said with feeling. I had no such motive as hers. Oh, Alec, that is what I admire so much in this girl, the looking ahead for work, Christian work, in unsought places. End of chapter 18 Recording by Tricia G.